So we have begun a series, it turns out, on the three marks of existence, um, this concept um, um, from Buddhist psychology. And I read an article yesterday uh, that made me want to clarify my use of the term Buddhist psychology. Um, Buddhism has been present in the world for more than 2,500 years now and has had many profound different expressions in many, many cultures. And some of those, um, uh, and for the most part, most of them until recently, have been deeply religious. Um, and so when I use the word Buddhist psychology, I'm not meaning that in any way as a statement about other forms of, of working with these teachings. I just mean it in terms of my personal relationship to these very ancient teachings. This is the way that, um, that I relate to these teachings that have been profoundly influential in my life. So just wanted to name that. So this, this um, concept of the three marks of existence is a very fundamental concept in Buddhism that says that learning to reckon with the uh, reality of these three marks um, in all of existence um, is the pathway to freedom. The first one is that everything is impermanent. The second is that suffering is a part of life. And the third one is often translated as not self, no self, non-self. Um, but I like this definition I recently read better, um, which is nothing exists in and of itself without dependencies. So these three marks are not really very helpful as a dogma, as a dogma that you should accept and um, believe in. Rather, they are an invitation to explore what you can learn about quote unquote reality. And how do these three lenses to look at the world um, um, how are they useful in practice and meaning how are they useful in understanding a life um, that is opening to greater and greater freedom and compassion. And they, the insights that people um, have gathered from these three, um, um, I, these three marks um, is in no way owned by Buddhism. It's, it's humans examining life um, and what people have come up for three eons. So for example, last week, we really looked at the first one, everything is impermanent through the lens of Michael J. Fox um, and his story of working with um, Parkinson's. Uh, in particular, uh, his telling of how a couple of years ago he found himself um, down in a pit of real darkness and despair, um, confined to bed and um, began to obsessively watch 1970s game shows. 
Uh, and what he did that was different than many people binging was he gave himself permission to see this as somehow useful, even if he couldn't understand why. And questioned, you know, why? Why am I watching these shows about dead people winning cars that have mostly been junked? And it finally came to him that it was understanding the cycle of life, understanding how um, things roll on and how he was out there in reruns and how after he was gone, this, this um, rerun might still be rolling on and other people being affected. Uh, and this understanding of mortality reckoning with mortality that came up for him really led him back to gratitude for life um, and led him into, from there, just refining a strength to reconnect with life in a very meaningful way. So it was absolutely a reckoning with impermanence and mortality, which led him back into a strong sense of connection with life. So this week, um, the way these three marks of existence are usually taught is the first is everything's impermanent, the second is suffering as a part of life, and the third is this idea of non-self. Um, but this week we're actually going to skip the second um, and go to the third, uh, which is often considered the hardest to get our heads wrapped around. And this makes sense. If you think about the first two, impermanence is everywhere. If we open our eyes, we understand this as a reality of this existence. Um, we are right now at the time of the solstice where um, the year has been, the, day, the light has been um, shortening. And as of now, the light's gonna start lengthening. Um, um, our Appalachian Mountains here in North Carolina. I don't know if you knew, know this, but they used to be taller than the Himalayas. Um, and those massive height mountains are now these rounded um, small grandmothers um, here. Uh, if we're lucky enough, Aging is inevitable. If we're lucky to live long enough, aging is an inevitable part of life. Um, so it doesn't take much to open our eyes to understand all things change. We also don't have to look very far, even in our own lives, much less the world, to understand that there is a suffering that is a part of this existence. But this last one, this, um, anatta, or I also have heard it pronounced uh, anatta, I don't know which way is correct, in Pali, that's the language um, of the Buddha. Um, and it's often translated as no self. That one brings up a lot of confusion. Um, but I really want to skip to that because it feels... Um, appropriate in this time of solstice uh, to look at this. Really honoring um, the solstice is where humans have for eons contemplated being part of a process of change, um, part of a natural 
way of things moving on in a certain way. So um, solstice for me is really about honoring how we are affected by and therefore part of the process of the earth shifting in its path, bringing this change of seasons and the like. It's just a natural process that arises out of the causes and conditions of the way our universe works. There is a way of understanding this idea of non-self that is very related to that same kind of um, realization into natural processes arising in particular ways. So the word has been translated in many ways. The one that has been the most common until recently is no self. And that translation has been the source of endless confusion. Um, um, Better is to let go of this idea of no self because of course there is a self, you know, any one of us can, can reference back into ourselves at this moment and hear that little voice of, ooh, I, me, mine, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's there, it's, it's part of uh, what, what our heads say um, and how, how we relate to the world. And there are very positive ways that this sense of self um, can be highly functional uh, and very helpful in our day-to-day reality. So the insight is really not about trying to rid ourselves of a useful part of our being. It's rather about understanding how that sense of self that we can tap in and feel has no fixed or lasting permanence. It has no standalone separateness from everyone and everything else as much as we think it means we do, (laughs) that we are independent, that we are separate and we are different. Um, Insight is into that's a flow of causes and conditions as opposed to a statement of reality of independence. So this concept of self really is an ongoing synergistic process that arises out of vast and very complex interactions internally and externally with everything around us. And it is always changing even when we perceive it as a fixed sense of me or I. This 2,500-year-old Buddhist idea fits right with what neuroscientists are now uncovering about the mind and how the brain works. Another one of those places where the, the interweaving of somebody deeply observing how the mind works telling the same sort of information that putting a person in an MRI is starting to show up for us now. So I like the way Dana Nori um, writes this. Uh, She says, neuroscience posits, posits a feeling of self that is created by a multitude of processes. Emotions, feelings, and thoughts go into creating a feeling of self, but it's only a feeling 
not an actual central driver. There is no central processor or self in the brain. The brain creates our feeling of self in a variety of ways. Society influences our feelings of self and independence. And our reaction to the world either makes that feeling stronger through clinging or allows it to pass naturally through letting go. So the Buddhist insight really is not about no self. It's about no fixed, independently existing self. And I just want to share one other quote. I really like the way Stephen Batchelor said this. Um, Gotama, um, which is a name for the Buddha, was the name of Buddha. Um, Gotama did for the self. What D Gotama did for the self was what Copernicus did for the earth. He put it in its rightful place, despite it continuing to appear as it did before. Gotama no more rejected the existence of the self than Copernicus rejected the existence of the earth. Instead, rather than regarding it as a fixed, non-contingent point around which everything else turned, he recognized that each self was a fluid, contingent process, just like everything else. So why does this matter? What's, what difference does it make whether I think of myself as an independent being or I understand that that sense of self is this arising out of an inner relationship between me and everything else going on. That shift puts us back in our rightful place in relationship to everyone and everything else around us. When we think of ourselves as independently existing, we are at liberty to destroy the earth to go to war on the small scale and the large scale with people in our family, with neighbors, with community, with the world. And we do that in the name of self-preservation. We enable all of the painful otherings that go on in our world towards people, animals, land, earth. When we shift and instead begin to practice with the view of understanding how we are indeed a part of everyone and everything around us, not only does this open up just this wellspring of beauty in terms of understanding interrelatedness, of even like Michael J. Fox understanding a certain kind of beauty being shown through the 1970s game shows. There is this remarkable beauty of interconnected being that we begin to perceive in. It also demands a change in our ethics. It also demands a shift in our understanding of what it takes to be safe, healthy, well in the world. 
if my being, my safety is dependent, is related to the well-being of everyone's. So the ethics, that deserves kind of its own talk, and I'm going to um, set that aside for, for today um, and just focus on the practical shift in terms of reducing our own personal suffering when we start to understand this in a different way. And it's really about understanding non-self, as I said, someone else defined it as nothing exists in and of itself without dependencies. So I grew up in an era, which I know some of y'all can relate to, where indigenous ways of understanding an interconnection of all things was really just starting to be appreciated. But I can remember very clearly hearing this presented as poetic, beautiful metaphor, um, not a deeper understanding of reality. And I'm not sure I got that set that difference until one day, this was early in my practice many, many, many years ago, um, when I don't know what inspired me, I was sitting at my desk and I suddenly sat down and looked at my hand and did a hand meditation. Like I just suddenly got really, really curious. Where did this come from? What, you know, what, where did the substance of my hand, what, how did, how did this get to be here? And having been, I probably was still practicing as a family practice doctor, you know, in my mind, I remember the thought, I have the science to figure it out. <laughs> uh, and I really like took it back to the substance of my hand to the place where I realized my parents only gave me two cells, two cells. And so everything else in the substance of this body had to arise from somewhere else. And it is constantly replenishing. Well, where does it arise from? Rise from the earth, arise from the sky, the water, um, earth, wind, fire. That is not metaphor. That's sunlight, water, earth substance right here. And it wasn't an intellectual um, uh, intellectual analysis for me in that moment. It was a profound, visceral shift of understanding my own being and my own substance as earth itself. That kind of shift of understanding, that kind of experience, it can't help but grow greater compassion within us for the world and all that's in it. And living from that kind of compassion and understanding at whatever level I can pull off in any given moment, that just feels better than being lost in a fight storm, a worry storm, an anxiety storm, whatever it is, a constantly feeling bewildered and confused by why people do what they do. So it's interesting how there is this very practical underlayer that we begin to experience when we 
see when we shift our perspective that again brings greater freedom and ease right here in a real way in this life so i want to finish with a um uh a little um, story from Sylvia Borstein. And if you don't know her, uh, there are many ways she's um, uh, sort of a grandmother of American um, Buddhism, American mindfulness, um, which she talks about on many levels uh, and just a profoundly big hearted teacher. Um, so I love, I love her teachings and want to share her um, visceral shift with this understanding. She says, I was walking through the airport terminal when my eyes met those of a baby approaching me, strapped into a carrier on his mother's chest. And I knew that baby was me. A thrill went through me. I knew in that moment, it did not matter that I was aging because that baby, me, in a newer, fresher guise, was on his way up in life. I recall laughing, maybe even out loud, as the baby and mother passed. I knew then that the others around me were all me too. And the mother and baby and each other as well coming and going in this airline terminal and in life were me. I felt happy and I said to myself, thinking about interconnection is one thing but these moments of direct understanding are great. I sat in the boarding lounge, feeling tremendous affection for my fellow travelers. So let's pause for a moment. Let's feeling into your own experience of self, not self. And nothing existing in and of itself without dependencies. Thank you.